The Boston Marathon is back on its rightful date, Patriots Day, a.k.a. Marathon Monday. It was a great day for spectators from Hawkington to Boston, and it was a really great day for Kenyans. The latest from the finish line coming up. This is Monday, April 18th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Ukrainian refugees arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border are enjoying expedited admission to the U.S., but children who arrive with family other than parents are still being separated and detained. The National Urban League's latest report on the state of black America is not an optimistic one. The disparities in American life between blacks and whites are persistent, locked in. The report focuses on changes to voting laws enacted by dozens of states. These stories and the forecast, it's a wet one tonight, coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Russian strikes are intensifying in Ukraine. Missile attacks in Kharkiv and to the south Lviv, where hopes of relative safety faded with news that the city had suffered its first civilian deaths since the start of the war in late February. But Pentagon spokesman John Kirby told reporters a short time ago that Russia is still focused on the east and south. We have continued to see the concentration of their airstrikes and artillery in the Donbass and in the south, particularly around and in Mariupol. That's where uh, the preponderance of their uh, strike activity has, has gone. And the fighting with Mar- Mariupol, as you guys have all seen, continues. The Ukrainians are still resisting. Uh, the city has not fallen to the Russians, uh, but they continue to pound it from the air and, and through, uh, through long-range fires. Last week, President Biden authorized an additional $800 million in military aid to Ukraine. Kirby says the first shipment was on its way two days later. He says the speed was unprecedented. Abortion remains unavailable in Kentucky after a new state law took effect late last week. Reproductive rights groups are asking a federal court to block the new legislation. They say the policy makes it impossible for doctors to provide abortions. Here's NPR's Sarah McCammon. The new law, known as HB3, took effect immediately under an emergency provision after Republican lawmakers voted to override Democratic Governor Andy Bashir's veto. The law creates new regulations for both surgical abortion procedures and abortion pills. Heather Gatnerick with the Kentucky ACLU says, among other things, the law requires providers to fill out paperwork that doesn't yet exist. So there's no way for providers to go ahead and provide either abortion um, without being able to uh, fill out the particular form that the state wants that simply hasn't been created. The ACLU and Planned Parenthood have filed federal lawsuits seeking to restore abortion services while the law is challenged. But for now, clinics say they're not providing abortions in Kentucky. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. The far-right conspiracy media outlet InfoWars has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in Texas. Remember station KUT, Joseph Lay reports a company and its founder, Alex Jones, are facing insolvency due to multiple defamation lawsuits filed Sunday over Jones' claims that the 2012 mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School was a hoax. The bankruptcy filing shows InfoWars has about $50,000 in assets and owes up to $10 million in liabilities. Creditors listed include some relatives of the 20 children and six educators killed in the 2012 school shooting in Connecticut. Jones has lost three defamation lawsuits for spreading lies about the murder victims. Trials are set to begin to determine how much Jones must pay family members in damages, but the bankruptcy filing puts the civil litigation on hold. Two other companies connected to Jones have also filed for bankruptcy. I'm Joseph Leahy in Austin. The Dow closes down 39 points. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. From the screaming college students lining the marathon route at Wellesley College to the encouragement of spectators on Heartbreak Hill. Boston Marathon runners were lifted through the 26.2 miles from Hopkinton to Boylston Street today. It was a triumphant return to the traditional Patriots Day after the race was disrupted by the pandemic. Reigning Olympic champion Paris Jabchirchir of Kenya celebrated the 50th anniversary of Boston's women's division with her win. Evans Chabet of Kenya is the men's champion. American Daniel Romanchuk won his second men's wheelchair title. Manuela Schar of Switzerland won the women's wheelchair race. The brother of marathon bombing victim Martin Richard finished the race today. Henry Richard was 10 years old when 8-year-old Martin was killed in the blast. Their younger sister Jane lost a leg and their mother was severely injured. Henry Richard ran for a foundation set up to honor his late brother. Marathon wouldn't be possible without the help of volunteers along the route. Brian McBride was stationed at the water stop near Coolidge Corner. It's just a little more return to normalcy, you know. Um, obviously, it's always this time of year, right? So you have that muscle memory of the, the weather, and uh, April is different than October. So, yeah, it feels like a return to normalcy. Some 10,000 volunteers helped out. In sports, Red Sox were hammered by the Twins today, 8-3 to in the traditional morning Patriots Day start. The Sox and Twins split the four-game series. Red Sox say catcher Kevin Plawicki and two staff members have tested positive for COVID-19. Manager Alex Cora previously said the team is planning to be without multiple players for their upcoming Toronto series because they were unvaccinated. In the forecast, gorgeous today, wild winds and wet tonight. Rain after midnight could be heavy at times. Some strong winds up to 40 miles an hour at times. Lows about 42. Tomorrow rain should continue in the morning. Still some gusty winds. Eventually should be partly sunny with high temperatures in the mid-50s. It's 4.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Russian forces today fired at least five rockets on a city in western Ukraine that had been a refuge for tens of thousands of civilians fleeing more dangerous cities in the east. At least seven people were killed in Lviv, the first deaths in a city that had largely avoided the worst of Russia's attacks. Ukrainian officials say missiles struck three military targets and a fourth hit an auto repair garage. Here with more is NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez. He's sheltering now amid air raid sirens a few hours east of Kiev. Hi, Franco. Hey, Daniel. So, Franco, this is a big development. Lviv looks secure on a map. Um, it's about the furthest you can get from the Russian border. A senior U.S. defense official told reporters today that these were Russian cruise missiles from long-range bombers. But from where you are, um, how significant are these attacks in Lviv? You know, I'd say very. You know, this has been one of the calmest areas of the country uh, throughout the conflict. I mean, the mayor of Lviv, though, Andriy Sodavi, said the attacks uh, show that really there are no, quote, safe areas in Ukraine. What we see in Ukraine today is genocide, which is purposefully carried out by an aggressor who kills civilians. Seven civilians had plans for life. Today, their life is over. 
You know, he went on to say that more than 200,000 Ukrainians have fled to Lviv for safety. And actually more than 100 embassies have also moved to the city. Right. What's the sense in the city now? Well, people are scared. I mean, there are already a lot of internally displaced people there. But, you know, it's been kind of a area that has been considered safe. The closest attacks were about three weeks ago when Russian rockets hit the outskirts of Lviv. But this morning, the city was covered in black smoke for several hours. And, and people are arriving every day. My colleague Yevgen Afanasyev spoke with a young mother, Yulia, who arrived in Lviv today with her daughter, Anya, who was five. They fled the Dnipro region, trying to get away from this kind of violence. Yulia is saying that they had to leave behind her husband, Anya's father. And that second little voice there is Anya, of course, who jumped in to add that they also had to leave their cat. You know, Yulia is still a bit shaken up. She saw what was left of that attack from the train. She's saying there, as they passed by the train, she realized that if the train had been on time and hadn't been delayed, the missile could have hit her and her daughter. Wow. Now, what about in the east, Franco? Uh, fighting is intensifying there. What's the latest? Well, first, in Mariupol, it's not looking good for the mil- Ukrainian military there. And there's also an upcoming offensive in the Donbass region in southeastern Ukraine. You know, President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed that last night, telling Ukrainian citizens that Russians, you know, literally want to finish off and destroy the region. Yeah. NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks, Franco. Thank you. The Biden administration is accepting 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of their country. Thousands of these refugees are coming in through the U.S.-Mexico border, where immigration agents now fast-track their entry into the country. While many families get in quickly, not all do, and some are being separated from their children, as NPR's Adrian Florido reports. In Tijuana, Mexico, earlier this month, I met Irina Mereshko, who had just traveled to Ukraine to pick up her nephew, Ivan, and bring him to stay with her in Los Angeles until the war in Ukraine is over. His plan in the U.S., Ivan told me, was to study. I will study American English and, uh, and culture, American. I will study culture. Ivan is a floppy-haired 14-year-old. He said he'd left his heart in Ukraine. My heart... Where is uh, my uh, friends and uh, my and my family? I I miss him, them. <laughs> his father couldn't leave Ukraine because he is of fighting age. His mother stayed too to support Ukrainian troops. A patriot, her sister called her. It's the reason why she isn't here. Yeah, I am proud of her. <laughs> if be honest. The day after I met them in Tijuana, Mereshko took her nephew to the U.S. border crossing, along with the stack of notarized documents that her sister gave her. At the border, Ivan asked immigration agents to let him enter the country on humanitarian grounds. The agents said they'd first have to detain him for a day or two while the documents were verified. His aunt hugged Ivan and said she'd be there when he got out. Ten days later, Ivan is still in detention. His aunt Irina has been desperate to find out where he is and to hear from him. She's back in Los Angeles with only a number for a government hotline. They couldn't uh, tell us where 
uh, he is right now. They said, just wait, just wait for calls from officer. Ivan's detention is not unusual. Border agents are required by law to detain children who arrive at the border alone or with someone other than a parent and turn them over to the Department of Health and Human Services. HHS houses them in detention centers for minors until the person trying to bring them into the U.S. has been vetted. Lately, that process has been taking about a month on average. Irina Mereshko is furious that border agents told her it would be only a day or two and that after 10 days, her family still hadn't heard from Ivan. She knows he's worried about his parents still in a war zone. And uh, he doesn't know even, uh, are they alive? Government officials declined to speak about Ivan's case. A spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services said only that children in their custody get good care while officials work to vet their sponsors and release them from custody. I think people don't understand that families are still being separated at the border. Casey Revkin is a co-director of Each Step Home, a nonprofit that helps families separated from children at the border find and reunite with them. They started this work several years ago when family separation at the border started dominating the news. They know that zero tolerance was a policy of the Trump administration that ended, but they don't know that kids are being separated from their grandmothers, their aunts, their uncles, and their siblings and taken into detention and that it takes weeks or months to reunite them. While Ukrainian refugees at the border are being fast-tracked into the country, the rules for children who arrive without their parents are the same for all children, regardless of where they're from, Repkin says. The detention is often made worse because it can take a long time for sponsors to get in touch with their child. Molly Saraski learned all this the hard way. In late March, she traveled to the border with Lisa, a 17-year-old family friend from Ukraine. The girl has been detained ever since. Saraski understands the need to vet sponsors, but said she's been urging other Ukrainians considering sending their children to the U.S. with relatives or friends to be prepared for a long separation. You know, for people who are just, you know, survivors of war, like it's just creating further trauma for children and for families. Saraski finally got a bit of good news today. After weeks of frantic phone calls, Lisa is getting out of detention tomorrow. Adrian Florido, NPR News. Time again for My Unsung Hero, our series from Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from John Moe. In the early 90s, John moved to Seattle to follow his dream of becoming a writer or an actor. Instead, he found himself working full-time in customer service at a software company. One day, he stopped by the office of a woman he knew in HR named Jane. Jane told him about a new job that was opening up at her husband's company. She said they were looking for someone creative. And I said, oh, okay, so you want to know if I can think of anybody creative? And she knew some of the other work I was doing on the side and the theater stuff and the comedy stuff. And she's like, no, no, I mean you. And I said, well, I don't know. I I have a job here. And she said, you don't belong here, which is a hell of a thing to hear someone in HR say at your company. She said, you're meant for something other than this. You're meant to do something else. You should be making your living being creative. And to me, it felt like I had been playing pickup basketball at the YMCA and somebody said, you know, you should you should play for the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> like it was it was that ridiculous an idea. 
undiagnosed, I had been dealing with depression for a long time by then. So I just had this inherent belief that other people got to do the cool things, and I had to go get a job that I hated and work there till I died. I think when someone has no confidence, when someone's beaten themselves down over so many years, which is often the case with depression, that that one little thing can make such a difference. And I'm welling up right now because somebody had seen something in me that that I hadn't seen in myself. And so now, when I can tell somebody's really good at something and isn't giving themselves credit for it, I've done this with writers who are much less experienced than me. I I try to tell them, you're a very good writer, you know, or you're an excellent reporter because maybe they haven't been told that enough times. And that confidence from hearing somebody say that, and I can always tell when I say that, when it's received and and goes all the way to their heart, that that's going to give them the confidence to get to the next level and so that they can get to that point and they can tell somebody else that at some later point. You know, you have this in you. You can do this. John Moe of St. Paul, Minnesota. He's the host of the podcast Depression Mode with John Moe. My Unsung Hero is also a podcast. You can find new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, historian Jill Lepore talks about billionaire Elon Musk, the man who has set his sights on taking over Twitter. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, with Benjamin Zander and pianist Alexander Korsantia in a benefit for Ukraine. May 6th at Symphony Hall, bostonphil.org. A slight dip for stocks to start off the week. The Dow fell about a tenth of a percent, 40 points to end the day at 34,412. S&P lost a tiny fraction to close at 43.92. The Nasdaq was down 0.14 percent to finish at 13,332. National Weather Service has issued a high wind warning for Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket for early tomorrow. Could have wind gusts of up to 65 miles an hour. The Steamship Authority is warning ferry cancellations are possible on both the Vineyard and Nantucket routes tomorrow morning. The forecast is coming right up. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. To get the latest forecast now, here's meteorologist Dave Epstein. 
After a gorgeous Patriots Day, we've got rain moving in in the wee hours of Tuesday morning. Temperatures falling down to the low 40s. A wind advisory along the coastline, but a high wind warning for the Cape and the Islands. Could be some scattered power outages there. The rain comes to an end during the morning commute on Tuesday, then breezy, cloudy, temperatures in the mid-50s. We clear out for Wednesday with sunshine, Thursday partly sunny, both days 55 to 60. In the Boston area, 48 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Twitter has put what's known as a poison pill provision into place in order to block Elon Musk's potential takeover of the company. As a reminder, last week Musk offered to buy Twitter for $43 billion, saying he would promote more free speech on the platform. So who is Elon Musk? He's the richest person on the planet, the man behind Tesla, SpaceX, and quite a bit of controversy. He's more than a celebrity. He's arguably the author and avatar of a new political economy. That is how Harvard historian Jill Lepore explains his significance in her podcast series, The Evening Rocket. And she joins me now to talk about the billionaire CEO. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So your podcast isn't only focused on Elon Musk, the man. You also look at what he represents. Um, And you call it Muskism. So what is Muskism? (laughs) I think of it as sort of an extreme, extravagant form of capitalism, really extraterrestrial capitalism. Hmm. X is Musk's favorite letter of the alphabet, as it is of (laughs) many science fiction fans. So X capitalism seems somehow also to fit. How do you define extreme capitalism? I think it's a kind of unchecked capitalism that insists that the government really has no role in the regulation of economic activity at the practical level. I think at the cultural level, it really is engaged with selling the public on the idea of futurism as a way to impose economic conditions that come from the very deep past. I think of Muskism and its vision for, you know, colonizing Mars as dating from the age of imperialism. when British imperialists were colonizing countries around the world and science fiction writers like H.G. Wells were indicting British imperialism by telling stories about space colonies and how wrong that would be to take other people's land and enslave the people there. And for Musk, somehow you can resurrect those stories in order to justify colonization. So Muskism always has within it, this extreme capitalism always has within it, almost a kind of ironic twist. Like, you think this is bad? We're going to go back to when things were worse. Huh. Well, he is a big science fiction fan. You talk about that on your podcast, um, an early fascination with sci-fi like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So how does his love of sci-fi translate into his vision of the future of technology? As a historian, one of the things I find so fascinating about Musk and Muskism is how much of the sort of fantasy of invention, especially disruptive innovation, remember that buzzword from the 90s, 
boasts itself as part of a culture of futurism, right? Everything's forward-looking and an abandonment of the past. In fact, a disavowal of the past, right? Because you, you really have to sort of always be starting from scratch. But so much of what the culture of Silicon Valley produces has its origins in science fiction, as I think a lot of those people would themselves recognize. But what they wouldn't see is that the origins in science fiction is actually an origins in dystopian science fiction. Hmm. So what a lot of people like Musk and others celebrate as their great futurism is, for one thing, really has tremendously important origins in the past. And for another, what they celebrate is often utopian, is has origins in dystopianism. I mean, he's even been called a real-life Tony Stark, you know, from the Marvel Universe. I mean, does he see himself that way as a kind of almost like a real-life science fiction character? Does that impact the way he interacts with, with public life? Oh, I think there was a period in his life when he was really into being Iron Man and being Tony Stark, and <laughs> the press loved that, and he was on the cover of every magazine as, you know, Elon Musk, the real-life Tony Stark. He appeared in one of the Iron Man movies with Robert Downey Jr., so he has a kind of celebrity iconic status. I mean, he's the guy who was on SNL, right? And it's part of the boyishness that musketeers really love about him. He can be very funny. He can be very witty online. He's an extremely smart guy. And there's a playfulness around that. One of the things that's distinctive about Musk, and in the sense that he's the best at this, is depicting your product as saving humanity. So even the Twitter bid in Musk's language is, is somehow about saving civilization. Well, let's get to the Twitter bit in a, in a second, but I, I just want to speak seriously for a second because he has this large group of passionate fans, the musketeers, as you call them. Uh, I mean, in my own family, uh, just this weekend, a, a relative of mine, we were speaking about models of leadership and what leaders we admire. And, uh, and, and my cousin mentioned Elon Musk. And, you know, I have, a, I have another cousin in Ukraine who... who out of the blue, said to me, I thank Elon Musk for helping provide Starlink, uh, you know, internet access in Ukraine during the war. So what is it about him that you think fascinates people so much and, and makes them buy into that vision of almost saving humanity? Well, I think Musk presents himself that way. He presents himself as a messiah. I think that Musk especially appeals, at least to people who are really kind of geeking out in engineering, as someone who is daring and courageous, maybe a little restless. And, you know, you can say that's not rocket science about a lot of things, but Elon Musk is doing rocket science. You know, his company yeah. is doing rocket science. The great good that Tesla is doing in terms of driving the revolution to move from um, fossil fuel powered cars to electric vehicles. No, this is a tangible, huge thing. So I think the musketeers are quite forgiving of all the many ideas, broken promises, extraordinary hype, self-love, self-obsession. I think it's given a, a big pass by other people who have that desire to be on, on Twitter all the time. I mean, I think since Trump's removal from Twitter, Musk, who had been on Twitter for a long time with large numbers of followers, kind of really became the kind of love-hate Twitter account. So let's talk about Elon Musk on on Twitter and and wanting to own Twitter. Um, he wants Twitter to be more like a, a public town square. He often tweets about his political views, but it's very hard to pinpoint where exactly he is politically. Um, he's called COVID nineteen lockdowns fascist, uh, but he has also resigned from former President Trump's business councils after the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. So. What do you think, based on what you've learned about him, what do you think he'd want to do with Twitter if he bought it? So 
I think Musk's politics are elusive for a reason. To try to deduce what Musk is looking for and attempting to buy Twitter, you'd be well advised to look for evidence of other public-spirited activity. I mean, what he would say and has said, he needs to take over Twitter in order to save civilization, which is what all of his science fiction heroes want to do. But where's the evidence that Musk has ever really been interested in democratic discourse? He routinely trolls people online. He's had an often adversarial relationship to the free press. He doesn't think that someone as wealthy as he is should have to pay taxes. He goes after people who go after him. As you say, during the pandemic, you know, he tweeted free America now and described the lockdown uh, and various shutdowns as fascist. There's just really not a whole lot of evidence that his big priority is healthy democratic society. Perfect time to delve into Elon Musk in a podcast. Jill Lepore, thank you so much. Thank you. Jill Lepore, a Harvard historian and host of the podcast, Elon Musk, The Evening Rocket. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Lots of sunshine out there right now. Hardly looks it now, but we've got stormy weather on the way. Tonight, rain, sometimes a soaking rain, driven by strong winds, about 40 miles an hour, closer to 60 miles an hour at times on the islands. Overnight lows about 42. Tomorrow should reach the mid-50s with rain early, strong winds well into the day. Sunshine eventually emerging. Should have lots of sunshine by Wednesday, close to 60. Red Sox and Twins split the first series at Fenway Park. Today, the Twins beat Boston 8-3. to The Blue Jays come to Fenway tomorrow. This is WBUR, 48 degrees now in Boston at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. The Handel and Haydn Society, with Haydn's The Creation, Harry Christopher's final concerts as artistic director, April 29th and May 1st, handelandhaydn.org. And Walnut Hill School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. Do you have little ones in your life? Great news! The mega-awesome, super-huge, wicked-fun podcast Playdate is returning to WBUR's City Space, April 23rd and 24th. Join me, Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's storytelling podcast, Circle Round, and some of our other favorite kids' podcasts for live performances, music, and activities. Tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. See you there! Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A senior U.S. defense official says Russia has moved thousands of additional forces into Ukraine in recent days, with fighting forces concentrated in the east and south of that country. Although today in Ukraine, a missile strike hit the western city of Lviv. NPR's Ader Peralta has more. Lviv is in western Ukraine, uh, not far from the border with Poland. And throughout this conflict, it has been seen as a safe haven. It had received very few airstrikes, and the city felt in a lot of ways like 
totally normal. Restaurants were open, people were strolling through the parks and the squares. Um, it is home to a lot of Ukrainians who had fled from more dangerous parts of the country. Um, but today, local authorities say that several Russian missiles struck the city. They say that uh, civilians were killed and that one of those missiles hit a tire repair shop. NPR's Ada Peralta reporting. The war in Ukraine is pushing global food prices higher. NPR's Nareet Eisenman reports. United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization tracks a food price index. Between February and March, it spiked by 12 percent to an all-time high. Aid groups say the impact on people who are already struggling to afford food has been severe. In Afghanistan, a month ago, 55 percent of people were in crisis levels of food insecurity. Now, that's gone up to 65 percent of people. In some West African countries, including Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, and Mali, 27 million people are currently going hungry. Aid organization officials predict that by June, 11 million more people there will be. They're calling on wealthy countries to immediately step up assistance. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. Wall Street, the Dow turned down in late-day trading, closing off 39 points at 34,411. The Nasdaq closed down 18 points. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. From Hopkinton to Boylston Street, Boston, crowds of marathon spectators were large and boisterous. WBUR's Ali Germanning filed this report from Coolidge Corner. After three years, the Boston Marathon is back where it belongs. In April, and spectators filled the streets to celebrate. Kristen Vincent brought along her mom and two young girls. She says this is her favorite day of the year. I think the marathon demonstrates the best of the human spirit. And there are so many amazing stories for all the runners, all 30,000 of them. And I find it so inspirational. Plenty of people cheering along the course agreed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani. And WBUR's Alex Ashlock will run down the results in just a couple of minutes. Mother of a five-year-old New Hampshire boy whose body was found in Massachusetts was indicted today on murder charges. Elijah Lewis went missing in October 2021. His remains were recovered in Abington. His mother, Danielle Daufinius, is facing one count of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and three counts of witness tampering. She's being held without bail. Real estate brokers in Boston, Canton, Ashland, and Wellesley have agreed to settle accusations they discriminated against prospective tenants who received public assistance. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office announced in one case a Framingham realtor did not lease an apartment to a man who was disabled and wanted to use a housing voucher. The broker agreed to pay $15,000 in restitution but has not commented. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs starting May 6th, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Red Sox lost to the Twins today for the final game of their series, 8-3 to three Twins in the forecast. Sunshine this afternoon, clouds gradually dominating the sky, though overnight tonight, rain after midnight, some soaking rains at times, strong winds as well, lows about 42. Tomorrow should start off with rain and gusty winds, eventually partly sunny skies. Highs tomorrow in the mid-50s. In the Boston area right now, 46 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Runners continue to cross the finish line of the 126th Boston Marathon at this hour. WBUR's Alex Ashlock has been out on the course all day long and joins us right now. Alex, tell us where you are. Right now I am inside, not far from the finish line, where, as you said, runners are still crossing it and will be until probably early evening. And among the big stories of the day today, the race was run on the date that is actually supposed to be run, Marathon Monday or Patriots Day. For the first time since 2019, the pandemic had forced it to be canceled in 2020 and then moved to the fall of last year. Very briefly, how did it feel to be out there? It felt great and normal, big, boisterous crowds along the course on a beautiful spring day. The marathon back in its traditional place. Another headliner, uh, Kenyan runners did really well, and we'll get to the men's race in just a minute. But first, the women's race, which was dramatic, and you had front row seats the whole way. You were on the truck, uh, and the winner is somebody we should get to know because she has exploded on the world scene recently. Boy, she really has. Kenyan runner Paris Jepchirchir burst on the world scene. She came into this race as the Olympic marathon champion, winning in Japan in 2021, and also as the reigning New York marathon champion. She had this great battle with Ethiopian runner Annabelle Yanesha of Ethiopia in the last three or four miles, but actually they were battling from about the five-mile mark in this race. They broke away from the pack. It was a kind of a smaller pack, but it was really these two runners who broke all the other runners. They came down Boylston Street. Jep Cheer took the lead right after the turn off of Hereford, and she made her move there and won the race by four seconds. Here she is. I thank my God for the energy of today. I was not expecting to win. Uh, but I'm feeling grateful, and uh, now I can say that um, I'm believing myself more, and I'm so grateful for today's victory. Well, she can be grateful for today's victory right along with her fellow Kenyan, Evans Chibet, who's the winner of the men's race. What should we know about him? Well, this was his first major win. He's 33 years old, and uh, the win today certainly must erase the bad memories he has from 2018 when he had to drop out during that monsoon we all remember. He wasn't alone that day. A lot of runners had a, a terrible experience during that terrible rainstorm we had. The men's race, like the women's race, Lisa, came down to two runners, really, but Chibet broke away a little bit earlier than uh, the women's winner did. He did it with about four miles to go to win today's Boston Marathon, and he finished ahead of two past Boston Marathon winners, 2019's Lawrence Tirono and last October's winner, Benson Kipruto. Alex, in the men's wheelchair race, American Daniel Romanchuk won his second Boston, and the defending champion withdrew at the last minute. Tell us what happened there. Romanchuk found out at the starting line, in fact, that Marcel Hug of Switzerland, who's really the best men's wheelchair racer in the world these days, had to withdraw from the race for medical reasons. And Romanchuk took advantage of Hug's absence to win by nearly six minutes. And remember those boisterous fans I mentioned earlier? Romanchuk heard them. Remember uh, turning onto Boylston at the at the end and just seeing you know a 
just a wall of uh, of people, and they're all cheering. Uh, so it's just a, an, an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And it was a familiar face taking the crown in the women's wheelchair race. And well, Ashar of Switzerland won her fourth Boston Marathon, but she too wasn't facing a big rival because American Tatiana McFadden had dropped out of the field on Friday, again for medical reasons. But Shar did not come into today's marathon with anything approaching confidence. Here she is. Preparation was a bit difficult. I wished I had two more weeks or so for training, preparing, so I didn't quite know uh, where I stand um, after my COVID a um, few weeks ago. So um, just so glad I'm back. Um, crowd was amazing. I really needed that today. So it was just fun to race. You know, it's just really interesting, Lisa, to hear these professional athletes talk about not being sure where they stand or not having right. confidence. Paris Jepchirchir said she wasn't expecting to win today. This is a woman who won the Olympic marathon, and she came into the Boston Marathon not expecting to win. It's just really interesting to hear that. There were some headwinds during the race today. Did that nullify any chance of somebody running a record time? Were there any records broken? Well, the Boston Marathon is not really a record-breaking race. It's really just about winning the race. It's a lot like the Olympic Marathon. Um, the Kenyans do really well here. They're very good championship runners. The African runners in general do very well. They scored five of the top ten places, five of the top ten places in the men's race. There was one American in the top ten, Scott Fobble of Flagstaff, Arizona. The top U.S. woman was Nell Rojas of Boulder. She was tenth, but seven other American women, women that is, finished in the top 20, including Daz Linden, the 2018 champion. Those women today were part of a very special race that marked the 50th anniversary of the first official women's division at the Boston Marathon. So they wrote a new chapter in that history. Excellent. WBR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock at the finish line. Thank you so much, Alex. You're welcome, Lisa. And again this year, Marathon Monday on Patriots Day is back. It's the first year since 2019 that the race is being held on the state holiday. WBR's Yasmeen Amr spent time today talking to spectators at the halfway mark by Wellesley College. It's a cool and sunny spring morning. Sarah Rifkind is here from Chicago to cheer on her brother Kyle. He spent years trying to qualify for Boston. It means everything for him. We've called it his Mount Everest. But Kyle had delayed his Mount Everest. He qualified to run the marathon last year when it was moved to October, but decided to wait. Because this is something he's been working towards for so long, he wanted the full experience. And the full experience of running the Boston Marathon, in his mind, was doing it in April, on Patriots Day. Even regular spectators welcomed the marathon back to April. 15-year-old Caroline Kolka has been watching the race since she was one. This year feels different from last October's. I feel like I was more hesitant to give people high fives because COVID was still pretty relevant. But now I feel like I'll be more comfortable getting closer with people because lots of people are vaccinated and um, it's just come so far since the very beginning of COVID. But some traditions have had to take a step back. Kolka's family used to cut up orange slices to hand out to runners, but not today. Yeah, it's kind of sad, but maybe in a couple of years people will feel more comfortable eating oranges from strangers. Another tradition here at the Wellesley Screen Tunnel is for college spectators to kiss passing runners. The college told students not to do that last year. This year, it's more like a strongly discourage. But that won't stop everyone, at least not Helena Bowser. My sign says, kissing me is better than runners high. Honestly, would you kiss any of the runners this year? Absolutely, absolutely I would. I'm a junior at Wellesley, I would absolutely 
to kiss a runner. So you want to bring that tradition back? Absolutely. I think it's like, it's time to bring it back. It's time to have fun. So it's like, it feels safe to bring it back to you. I don't know if it's safe, but you know, it's a time in my life to make questionable decisions. Yeah. But Rebecca Hobbs, a senior, has never been a fan of the kissing, even before COVID. Honestly, even back then, it was like kind of gross because everyone was really sweaty, you know. But I also think with COVID now, it's a perfect time to let the tradition die and start a new one. For her, a simple high five does just the trick. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr. The National Urban League's semi-annual State of Black America report gauges how blacks in this country are doing socially and economically compared to whites. The civil rights organization released its 2022 report last week with what it calls an equality index. And the index concludes that black Americans are are only doing about 74 percent as well as white Americans. This year, the report focuses on changes to voting laws enacted by dozens of states and calls it a plot to destroy democracy. I'm joined now by Mark Morial. He's president and CEO of the National Urban League. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've been putting out these equality studies for almost two decades. What are the factors you look at to determine equality between black and white Americans? There are about 300 social and economic indicators, everything from the joblessness rate to the home ownership rate, uh, to life expectancies, to high school graduation rates, to college graduation rates, to median family income, to meet, to net family net worth. We look at all of these 300 factors and they're compiled into an index where the condition of white Americans is indexed at one and the condition of black Americans is indexed uh, at a percentage of one or greater than one if African Americans outperform whites in a particular area. Uh, This index, uh, uh, which we think is the best, the most reliable uh, and, and, and the most accurate indicator of disparities Uh, as to social and economic conditions between blacks and whites uh, has moved very little in the last 15 or so years. Hmm. And while these numbers show conditions pre the pandemic, uh, the truth is there was some movement uh, in narrowing median family income. There was some movement uh, when it came to uh, narrowing health disparities, but they were offset by losses in areas such as social justice. So this year, Uh, In addition to the index, we put a fine, 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 fine lens on voting and democracy in this country. And we knit together all of the actions that have taken place since the election of Barack Obama when it comes to voting. Right. You actually say that that there's a, quote, all out assault on voting rights, which can impact black and brown voters. Uh, So specifically, what is going on? So what is going on is that there is a movement. Uh, by some bad actors, by some far-right actors to undermine American democracy. There have been no less than 500 bills uh, that have been proposed in state legislatures since uh, 2009 to make it more difficult for Americans to vote. There's been an assault through the courts on the Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court has been an enabler, striking down a key provision Uh, of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 and weakening provisions in several other decisions. All of this when taken together. And when you add to it Vladimir Putin's interference in the 2016 election, which was targeted at 
dissuading and discouraging African-Americans to vote through a propaganda campaign. Uh, and you add January 6th and the fact that hundreds of new bills have been introduced and many passed since January 6th. This is a campaign to make it more difficult for Americans to vote. It's targeted at black Americans and brown Americans, but it impacts others. Now, it impacts let me, our seniors, our disabled, and many young voters as well. Let me ask you about the Republican politicians who are behind uh, the changes in the voting laws. They say they're responding to their constituents who see they want to prevent voter fraud. Um, and they insist that they're not targeting any one group of voters. So what do you say to those who think that these changes actually strengthen democracy? Show me a scintilla of evidence that there's voter fraud. Show me some uh, minutia of support for the notion that there's fraud. This is what we call a cover story. Another version in a big lie to seek to suggest that there's, some, there's no legitimacy uh, to any of this. And those arguments just fail. Republicans historically supported voting rights. Something has happened in the last 10 years. We've got to make the protection of democracy, uh, once again, a bipartisan exercise okay. to protect the right of all Americans to vote. Mark Morial, president and CEO of the National Urban League. Thank you. Thank you. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, Maria Garcia, host of WBUR's Anything for Selena. The podcast tells the story about the star songwriter and singer Selena's life and Garcia's childhood spent on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. In the forecast sunshine today, rainstorms tonight should have a drenching rain after midnight, whipped around by strong winds down in the low 40s. Last of the showers could come tomorrow during the morning commute. Still pretty windy, then sunshine and clouds mix it up for the day tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. For Wednesday, closer to 60 degrees with partly to mostly sunny skies. National Weather Service has issued a high wind warning for Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket for early tomorrow. Wind gusts of up to 65 miles an hour are forecast. The Steamship Authority is warning ferry cancellations are possible on both the Vineyard and Nantucket routes by tomorrow morning. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Immersive Frida Kahlo, where visitors can discover the life, love, and art of the Mexican artist through a multimedia digital reimagining of her work set to a musical score. Now open at the Lighthouse Art Space at the Saunders Castle. Tickets available at immersive-frida.com. And Celebrity Series, presenting Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Christian McBride, and Brian Blade, a mood swing reunion, April 24th at Symphony Hall. Stablecoins are considered the bedrock of the crypto world. But if you were to see a problem with stablecoins, we actually don't know because this is a, essentially an unregulated market. I'm Rima Reis, an explainer on stablecoins, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Selena Quintanilla was known as the queen of Tejano music. Nearly three decades after her tragic death, Selena's father Abraham says a new album is set to be released sometime in the near future. According to Quintanilla, the first song on the new album is one Selena recorded when she was just a teenager. 
and this past weekend would have been Selena's 51st birthday. So we're going to revisit an interview I did about a podcast that chronicles her life. The show Anything for Selena doesn't begin with the singer's biography or her most popular tunes. Instead, it starts on the U.S.-Mexico border. The host, Maria Garcia, describes a plant that grows there, creosote. It has this unforgettable smell when it rains. It's slightly floral, but mostly it's this very specific, cool, earthy desert aroma. And there's usually a calm, clear breeze, which carries these concentrated little pockets of fragrance. Selena died at the age of 23, killed by the president of her fan club in 1995. And this podcast is about Selena and her music, but it's also about the host herself. So I asked Maria Garcia why she wanted to begin the first episode with this very specific description of a place. Ooh, because it's the place that made me. I feel like that place isn't just this like boundary on land. Um, that place also feels like this gash inside of me. Um, I was born in Ciudad Juarez. We moved to the States when I was three. But we went to Mexico every week. Uh, and so my early life was literally split down the middle in two countries, the U.S. during the week at school where I was Mary, where the first day of school, my teacher just decided to anglicize my name without the mm. permission of my parents. And so being Mary half of the week and being Maria in Mexico, the other half. And I was so aware that in either side of the border, it felt like the half of me was missing. And so I couldn't tell Selena's story without including that lens. Explain why the story that you tell about Selena is so relevant to this story that you tell about yourself being split down the middle by this border. Because she was the very first person I witnessed who embodied these two parts of myself. And she did it with such grace. And even at a young age, it was astounding to me to see a woman who was so proud of this identity that felt like it had been derided by the world. Um, you know, yeah. when I was a young girl, I would go back to Mexico and my cousins and my friends there started calling me a pocha, you know, which is a horrible insult <laughs> in Mexico. And it's made against somebody who, you know, has sort of like ruined the culture and the language with this sort of crass, working class sensibility. And so I felt this rejection forming in Mexico. Um, and then in the U.S., I also felt um, out of place. Uh, and so to see somebody who was beloved in both places without compromising herself, without sort of contorting herself, without code switching, even at such a young age, was incredibly profound for me. So there was a big hurdle that you had to clear before you could even begin to tell this story. What was it? Well, we couldn't make this podcast without her art, without Selena's songs. And I knew 
that I had to get the green light from her father, from Mr. Quintanilla, who is notorious for sort of guarding her legacy with an iron fist. And so the family actually turned you down. They denied your request for permission. And then, before the pandemic, you flew to Texas without any guarantee of a meeting with Mr. Quintanilla, Selena's father. I know that you can't read his mind, but given that so many people had given him the same talking points that you gave him. If you had to guess what it was in that personal meeting that you brought that others did not, that made him change his mind and say yes, like, what would you guess? I think it's that I genuinely wanted to know him. I wanted to really understand the person who raised Selena. And Selena talked about him all of the time, not just as her father, but like as her mentor, as a sort of uh, guiding light in her creative force. And they had a huge, huge bond as artists, not just as father and daughter. And that story, like it hasn't truly been told, like the complexity of their relationship. And, and it shed light to me on these narratives about Latino fatherhood and Latino daughters and all these sort of like stereotypes we have up there. I just wanted to capture him as a human, like not as this figure, not not as sort of like the force behind her career, but I wanted to know him. It seems like right now there is this boom in love for this young woman who was killed in 1995. I mean, there was a popular Netflix series. There's your podcast. And, and I could give other examples. Why do you think that is? I think there's a few reasons for it. One is there's a coming of age of people like me, people who have grown up in the age of so-called Selinidad, which is this idea that she's become sort of the symbol, right, for solidarity among Latinos. And two, we just haven't advanced that much in representation. Like, she was radical in the mid-90s because even in Latin America, there just wasn't, there just weren't women like her on TV. Women with um, brown skin, uh, sort of like curvaceous body, uh, people who, you know, clearly had indigenous heritage. In Latin America, you know, most of... The people in telenovelas or on, you know, just regular programming were white Mexicans or white Latin Americans um, with light colored eyes and very thin. And that's why it was so powerful. That's why Mexico fell in love with her, you know, because Hmm. journalists there were like, wow, she she is a star of the people. She looks like the people. Um, And so to this day, she's she's a symbol we hold on to. Maria Garcia is host of the podcast Anything for Selena, produced by WBUR in partnership with Futuro Studios. Thank you so much. Ari, thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. 
From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars, pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Small island nations must deal with flooding caused by rising sea levels in the aftermath when the waters recede. I have scooped mud out of my house, and sometimes there's so much mud you can't get it all in time, and then it starts to smell. Coming up, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry talks about helping those nations. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead this day before tax day, we'll find out about the IRS's shortages in staffing and technology. A Russia expert is stumped by some of the Kremlin's wartime moves in Ukraine. Would anybody have imagined that the Russian soldiers would have bedded down in Chernobyl's forest and radiated themselves? Coming up, why Russia's intelligence community is now facing the fallout from an invasion that seems to be going badly. And hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are still living close to the front lines as Russia prepares for another offensive. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces have begun their offensive to take over eastern Ukraine. Zelensky speaking on Ukrainian television. Zelensky saying Russian forces have now started the Battle of Donbass. In the meantime, Ukraine reeling from another wave of attacks today, including one that left at least seven dead and 11 wounded in the Western Ukraine. Ukrainian city of Lviv. More from NPR's Tim Mack. Lviv has become a hub for millions of Ukrainians fleeing violence in the east. Some have passed through the city en route to other points in Europe, and many more have stayed. The attacks on Lviv were carried out by Russian long-range bombers using cruise missiles, according to a senior U.S. defense official. Russia has moved thousands of troops into the country over the past few days as part of an expected new offensive in eastern Ukraine. The strike in Lviv, a senior U.S. defense official said, was an exception to what is expected to be Russia's focus on the eastern and southern parts of the country. Tim Mack, NPR News, Odessa. The Supreme Court is declining to hear the case of four New York City public school employees over a policy requiring them to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Lower courts had upheld the policy put in place by the school system while litigation continued. Justice Sonia Sotomayor also rejected an emergency request the policy be put on hold. Justices declined to get involved in the dispute without commenting. A federal judge has struck down the mask mandate on public transportation. That mandate from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been in place for over a year. More from NPR's Ping Wong. The CDC has required travelers on planes, buses, trains, and taxis to wear masks to prevent the spread of coronavirus since February 2021. The order was renewed several times, most recently last week through the beginning of May. 
Now, a U.S. District Court judge in Florida has ruled the order unlawful, declaring that it exceeds the CDC's authority and that the agency violated rulemaking procedure. Separately, the CDC has removed around 90 countries from its Do Not Travel Due to COVID list. The agency is still discouraging travel to many countries in Europe, Latin America, and Asia, but has updated its strictest criteria to apply only to countries in special circumstances, such as rapidly rising case counts. Ping Huang, NPR News. The White House calls the judge's decision disappointing. No word yet on whether the administration will appeal. The state of West Virginia will be awarded $99 million in a settlement finalized with Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Janssen Pharmaceuticals in connection with the opioid crisis. West Virginia State Attorney General Patrick Morsey calling it the biggest settlement per capita of its kind. In settling, J&J admitted no liability in connection with deaths caused by its opioid medication. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 39 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Runners are still crossing the finish line on Boylston Street as the Boston Marathon winds down. This is the first time the race is being held on the traditional Patriots Day since it was disrupted by the pandemic. This also marks the 50th anniversary of the first official women's race in Boston. Alex Ashlock reports the women's competition today was a finish for the ages. Kenya's Perez Jepchirchir came out on top in a neck-and-neck sprint down Boylston Street. She edged Ababel Yesana by just four seconds, even though she wasn't confident today. I was not expecting to win, uh, but I'm feeling grateful, and uh, now I can say that um, I'm believing myself more. Evans Chibet led a Kenyan sweep of the top three places in the men's race, while American Daniel Romanchuk and Switzerland's Manuel Achar won the wheelchair races. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. One of those to cross the finish line today was marathon bombing victim Martin Richard's older brother. Henry Richard was 10 years old when 8-year-old Martin was killed. That was in 2013. Their younger sister Jane lost a leg in the bombing and their mother was severely injured. Henry Richard ran for a foundation set up to honor his late brother. Real estate brokers in Boston, Canton, Ashland, and Wellesley have agreed to settle accusations they discriminated against prospective tenants who receive public assistance. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office announced in one case a Framingham realtor did not lease an apartment to a man who was disabled and wanted to use a housing voucher. The broker agreed to pay $15,000 in restitution but has not commented. Red Sox were hammered by the Twins today, 8-3 in the traditional morning Patriots Day start. The Twins and uh, Sox split the four-game series. It's been a lovely holiday. Rainstorms holding off until tonight. Gusty winds at driving rain, lows about 42 degrees. Could be power outages on the Cape and Islands where the wind should be especially fierce tonight. Tomorrow, rain tapers off during the morning drive. Still windy in the mid-50s, partly sunny skies eventually tomorrow. 46 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In small island nations, people know how climate change feels. They know how it smells. Climate activist Brianna Fruin is from Samoa. When the flood drains back into the ocean, it leaves piles and piles of mud. When I met Fruin at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow last year, she told me about the stench when floodwaters recede. 
I mm. scooped mud out of my house, and and sometimes there's so much mud you can't get it all in time, and then it starts to smell, and and that's an experience, a lived experience I have, being from a frontline community. On another Pacific Island nation, Palau, people from all over the world recently gathered to secure commitments on preserving the ocean's health and fighting climate change. John Kerry is the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. He helped start the first Our Oceans Conference in 2014 when he was U.S. Secretary of State, and he has just returned from Palau. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you. This was the first time the conference took place in a small island nation. Palau spans hundreds of islands in the Pacific. What does the climate path that the world is on right now mean for Palau's future? Well, Palau will be less affected than atoll states, nation states, that are basically built on on a reef ledge, if you will, that's above water, because it has mountains, it has elevation, so, but but its connections, its infrastructure will be enormously affected because it'll lose their causeways at certain times, and ultimately, definitively, the connections between their the islands uh, will become more complicated, and low-lying houses in the harbor and so forth will all be affected. And when you look at the commitments coming out of this conference, what immediate impact would those promises have on these small island nations? Well, very dramatic on those that will be able to have serious adaptation or even uh, some building of resilience. And those are things that were on the table in the discussion. I mean, we wanted to have a conference for the first time ever in a, in a small island state, a developing state, because they are the front lines of this crisis. And for many uh, there are literally nations today, defined nation state, that will disappear unless we move more rapidly to hold the Earth's temperature increase to the 1.5 degrees limit Celsius that was arrived at in Glasgow. Uh, right now, the latest IPCC report, that's the scientific report that comes from the UN Scientific Panel, has made it clear we're not getting the job done as a world, as a, as a group of nations, the United and And 20 countries, the United States included, 20 countries, the largest economies in the world, are responsible for 80% of all the emissions in the world. So if those countries don't move, uh, there's no prayer of of avoiding the worst consequences of the crisis, which is what we've been giving a a warning about. And these small island nations say that those large countries that are disproportionately responsible for climate change owe the smaller, less responsible countries, specifically money. You mentioned adaptation and resilience. And coming out of the Glasgow Climate Summit, these uh, developing countries did not get as much as they wanted. Do the commitments from the Our Oceans Conference that you've just returned from, do those promises provide the sorts of resilience measures that were lacking coming out of Glasgow? Some of them do. Some of them are commitments to do enforcement on fishing and the economic zones on high seas where... People are strip mining the ocean with these massive nets, and there's no control whatsoever. Some of the commitments go to uh, you know resilience and, and and efforts to understand better what the damages will be. Some of them go towards early warning systems so that people will better understand what's coming at them and how to build 
and adapt in ways that could avoid some of that damage, early warning systems, for instance. So there's a lot on the table. There were 15 plus billion dollars worth of commitments made at this conference with over 70 nations taking part in this small island state in the, in the Pacific and um, about 400 individual commitments by NGOs, by countries, by corporations. Let me ask you about how dependable those commitments are, because when the UN released its latest climate report earlier this month, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, basically said countries and businesses are not keeping the promises they've already made. Some aren't. Absolutely true. Some are not. And one of the things that was discussed in Palau was how to have a better accountability structure, more transparency. One of the things that's changing, has changed already, is that there are new satellite systems that are currently circumventing the planet that are instantaneously reporting on methane leaks, on CO2 levels. So companies previously have been able to make, or an individual supply chain or, or so forth, even a country, has made a pledge, and they've, known that they won't, and they've known there won't be a lot of accountability. Now there's a new accountability. You can, you can, the old saying, you, 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 can't, you, you, know, you can run, but you can't hide. Well, now you can't hide. And so right. I think there's going to be a new level of accountability. That is uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry. He is now the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the new Russian offensive has begun. Cities in the east and south are believed to be the main targets. One that has been under attack is Mykolaiv. NPR's Brian Mann and Tim Mack traveled there recently and found large numbers of civilians still living close to the front lines. A few months ago, Mykolaiv was a busy port city on the Black Sea with nearly half a million people. But as we pass through checkpoints on the edge of the city, the place feels hollowed out. A lot of people have fled. We're driving through the center of Mykolaiv now, and we're passing a large convoy of troop-carrying trucks packed with Ukrainian soldiers. We check in with a military officer who gives his name as Dmitra. He tells us the main Russian front lines are close. About 50 kilometers or shot. The Russians are roughly 30 miles away, Dmitra says, maybe closer. There's no active fighting in the city, but he says missiles land here on a daily basis. Day after day, <laughs> a rocket missile, Kursail missile. Through the day, as we talk to people in Mykolaiv, the air raid sirens sound again and again. I can hear in the distance now just a steady rumble of explosions. I don't know whether it's missile strikes, whether it's artillery. Despite the danger, Mykolaiv isn't abandoned. It's impossible to say just how many civilians are still here. But it's a lot, tens of thousands at least. On a street downtown, we find Yulia Rushkova at a little kiosk that's still open, selling coffee. Rushkova tells us she has a disability and mental health issues, too, that make it impossible for her to leave her home. We hear this kind of thing a lot from people who've stayed behind, despite warnings that a new Russian offensive is coming. Some people don't want to leave their homes. Others are elderly or tell us they're too poor to travel or have no place to go. 
we go to a children's hospital that officials here say was hit recently by Russian cluster bombs that shattered windows and injured staff. The medical director here, Dr. Irina Kachenko, tells us half of the kids have been evacuated, but the rest are still here. We're still operating at full capacity, she says. There are wounded kids, injured, so we keep operating. Dr. Kachenko looks exhausted. We ask what it's like for her trying to keep it together under these conditions with the war so close. <laughs> she kind of sighs and she says, what do you want me to tell you? Half our doctors left and the people who remain are working 24-7 without a break. It's heavy on us. It's exhausting. But we keep on going. The city's main water supply has also failed, and we find volunteers distributing fresh drinking water to people like Vladislav Dmitrovich. He's 85 and tells us he and his wife feel trapped. <laughs> because of the war, he says, half a million people in this town are left without water. He tells us even Hitler didn't do so much harm. As we talk to people, those air raid sirens don't let up. We get an alert that another Russian projectile has struck and exploded a couple miles away. Welcome, Ukraine. Thank you. Welcome. Zoo. That's Vladimir Topchi, head of the city zoo here. He shows us where Russian projectiles have landed on the zoo grounds, making small craters among the elephant pens and the tiger cages. His groundskeepers are collecting piles of scrap metal from the bombs and missiles. The Russians are just idiots, he says. They don't know what they're doing. Topchi takes us up a staircase to a platform where we find ourselves eye to eye with one of his giraffes. He tells us they have to keep the temperature just right to keep the giraffe healthy. 17 degrees Celsius is perfect. 16 degrees is too cold. But he's not sure the power will stay on. It already failed once for a full day. Tapchi says right now the animals aren't safe here and neither are the humans. Ukrainian officials say in places like Bucha and Mariupol, thousands of civilians have already been killed by the Russians. If the next phase of the Russian invasion reaches into cities like this one, where so many people are still living, the toll is certain to rise. For NPR News, I'm Tim Mack. And I'm Brian Mann in Mykolaiv, southern Ukraine. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, because you don't have enough to think about, tips and tricks for how to clean better, starting with your bedroom. In business, the National Weather Service has issued a high wind warning for Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket for early tomorrow. Could have gusts of up to 65 miles an hour. Steamship Authority is warning Ferry cancellations are possible on both the Vineyard and Nantucket routes tomorrow. A slight dip for stocks to start off the week.
week, the Dow fell about a tenth of a percent, 40 points, to end the day at 34,412. S&P lost a tiny fraction to close at 43.92. NASDAQ was down 0.14 percent to finish at 13,332. Marketplace has more details coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Red Sox and Twins split the first series at Fenway Park of the season. Today, the Twins beat Boston 8-3. to The Blue Jays come to Fenway tomorrow. We have the forecast with Dave Epstein next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, presenting a conversation with chef, restaurateur, and food writer Yotam Otolenghi on April 30th. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. And the Concord Museum. Experience history and art in the delightful new exhibit, Alive with Birds. William Brewster in Concord. ConcordMuseum.org. Clouds have obliterated the sunshine. Let's get the forecast for tonight with meteorologist Dave Epstein. Some high clouds around during the evening. It's cool with the sea breeze, but we fall to the low 40s overnight tonight. And when you get up tomorrow morning, it will be raining hard. Those winds strong along the coastline with a wind advisory for Boston, but a high wind warning for the Cape and the Islands. The rain does come to an end pretty early on Tuesday by about 8 or 9 o'clock, mid-50s, still breezy all day. On Wednesday, sunshine about 55 to 58, and Thursday, partly sunny, approaching 60. 46 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. So have you filed your taxes? Today is the deadline for most Americans to submit their 2021 tax returns. More than 100 million people filed before the deadline, and the vast majority of those returns have already been processed. But an estimated $600 billion in taxes will go uncollected this year because the IRS doesn't have the people and technology it needs to enforce the existing tax law. Here to talk about this with us is Deputy Treasury Department Secretary Wally Adeyama. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Let's start with a frustrating fact. This past year, when people called the IRS for tax help, only 11% got someone to answer the phone. Why has the federal government let the IRS become so understaffed? Uh, Daniel, you're right. That um, It's important to remember that the IRS is trying to serve every American. And last year, the IRS received 230 million phone calls and only had 15,000 people to answer those calls, which meant that each person had to answer 16,000 calls. And while the American people feel that every day, what Congress has actually done is starve the IRS with the resources it needs to enforce taxes against the wealthiest Americans who are the least likely to pay their taxes. Well, so let's talk about those wealthiest Americans. I mean, most wage earners uh, don't have much choice about paying their taxes. Their money is deducted up front in their paychecks. 
Uh, is that tax gap coming from the wealthy, and how are they avoiding? Uh, you're right. It is coming from the wealthy, and it's coming from people who earn incomes from stocks and other hard-to-value assets. You're right. If you're a teacher, if you're a fireman, if you're a police officer, you get a W-2, so the IRS knows how much money you earn. But if you're a billionaire or a millionaire, you're far more likely to be able to avoid taxes, and that's what all the data shows us. And that's why the president has called for increasing the resources for the IRS so they can enforce taxes against those who are least likely to be paying their taxes today. Why are the wealthy able to avoid taxes? Uh, because they have armies of lawyers who can help them avoid taxes and because Congress has underfunded the IRS. Today, the IRS has as many employees as they had in 1970. And the technological system that they're using to um, drive tax processing was built in the 1960s before we went to the moon. So wealthy individuals have all the capacity to be able to try and avoid their taxes, and the IRS has few resources to be able to go after them. So what is it going to take uh, to tackle these complex tax avoidance schemes people are employing? The most important thing that we need to do is to improve the technology of the IRS and also increase the number of people at the IRS who are able to go after these complex tax avoidance schemes. But the benefit isn't only going to be in increasing revenues. As you stated, we have a a tax gap that's about $600 billion. It's also going to improve services so that next year when you're filing your taxes, if the president's proposal goes through, um, services will be improved. There'll be more people to pick up the phone, more people to answer people's questions, more people to deal with the backlog and inventory that the IRS has going forward so that people's services are improved while we're also better able to enforce taxes against those who are least likely to pay. So uh, briefly, let me ask you, this money you're asking from Congress to fund the IRS, that's going to help collect taxes from tax cheats. This is not money designed to change the system fundamentally to make it easier for the rest of us to file their tax returns. It's both. It's both money to go after those who are cheating taxes, and what we found is those are the wealthiest Americans, but it's also money to make it easier for those of us who are just trying to file our taxes and get our refunds to do that as well, because we know that ultimately the, be- the beauty of our system is that it's a voluntary one where most Americans are doing their duty and trying to pay their taxes, and the president wants to make that easy as well going forward. We'll leave it there. Deputy Treasury Department Secretary Wally Adeyama, thank you. Thanks for having me. Spring cleaning season is here, and as you check off the chores on your list, keep in mind these tips gathered by LifeKit's Kavitha Cardoza last year for a more effective cleaning routine, starting with your bedroom. Kevin Frazier, a master gunnery sergeant at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, is responsible for converting messy teenagers into expert cleaners. He understands he lived the same way before he entered the Marine Corps. Clothes in a pile in the corner of the room, beds not made food everywhere. (laughs) The military, on the other hand, is very clean and organized. Frazier says when being organized is ingrained in Marines from the start, those skills spill into everything else, which can be critical in, say, a combat situation. Frazier calls it brilliance in the basics. Doing the basic stuff really, really well. When you can take care of all the little things, like cleaning your room, then when the big things happen, you are ready to accomplish that task. So maybe the stakes aren't as high for civilians and a clean home isn't necessarily a matter of life or death. But having a tidy home is going to make existing in that space easier, healthier and more pleasurable. Taryn Williford is a lifestyle director at the website Apartment Therapy. 
One of the most important rules is cleaning top to bottom. I used to strip the sheets before I would clean the bedroom. But the thing I would do after I stripped the sheets was start to clean the ceiling fan. And then all the dust would fall on my bare mattress. So leave those sheets on until you finish the fan and light fixtures. Then put the sheets in the laundry. Williford says rule number two is clean clockwise. When you clean clockwise or you follow the wall, it's really helping you make sure that you're not missing anything when you clean. Then the last thing is the floors. And that leads to rule number three. Do your dry cleaning before you do your wet cleaning. If you start straight in with your wet cleaners and you haven't dusted that surface, you're going to end up getting all that gunk, which is really not efficient. So say you cleaned everything, it's spotless, sparkling, like smells great. Describe what that feeling is like to you. A perfectly clean home really makes you feel like you can do anything. I really think a clean home is just the foundation for smart life habits that are going to impact your health, impact your mental health, impact your wellness, impact your hobbies, how excited you are to get up in the morning and and explore the day. The nice thing about cleaning your house is you get to decide when you're done. But just as an experiment, after you're all finished, imagine for a moment that Master Gunnery Sergeant Kevin Frazier is coming to inspect your work. He's thorough. No dust, no debris, trash taken out. You run my hands along the backs of the TV to make sure, sure there's no dust in any of the areas or crevices. The laundry room, make sure the lint traps are out. Same thing for the floors, uh, cleaned, swept. So you would kind of lift up the beds or open cupboards? Yeah, yeah. If a Marine fails inspection, he gets re-inspected on his day off. Well, trust me, they, they, they catch on real quick. I'd say within a week of getting there, they know exactly what to do and they do it. You can call it brainwashing or you can call it training. I, I like to call it training. <laughs> that was Life Kit's Kavitha Cardoza with some advice from last year on how to clean better. For more tips and tricks, check out the Life Kit podcast at npr.org slash lifekit. Total COVID control in China relies on migrant workers from testing door-to-door to manning isolation centers. The pay is low and the work is hard. On tomorrow's Morning Edition, a look at who some of these temporary employees are. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why Russia's war has been a disaster for Russia's spies. And we'll remember the early rock recording executive who helped launch the careers of Little Richard and Sam Cooke and helped make R&B popular with white audiences. After a beautiful day today, clouds have moved in, should have some wild winds and wet weather overnight tonight. Rain after midnight could be heavy at times. Temperatures just about the low 40s, but uh, some strong winds through the night and early tomorrow. Rain through the morning commute tomorrow, then eventually partly sunny skies. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. So two years into the state of kind of debt limbo, you've basically got two camps emerging. 
The first says instead of this series of last-minute reprieves, just cancel it, just get this over with. And the second camp says the opposite. Why are we not ending this moratorium right now? I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The White House says it's disappointed by a ruling from a federal judge in Florida that declared unlawful the federal mask mandate for planes, trains, buses, and other public transportation. U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell said the CDC did not follow proper rulemaking. The White House says the judge's ruling will be reviewed. The Pentagon says the war in Ukraine has entered a new phase with Russian so-called shaping operations to inflict even greater damage. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. continues its support efforts. This morning, the secretary called his Romanian counterpart, Minister uh, uh, Dinku, to continue coordinating our assistance to the Ukrainian people who are bravely resisting uh, Russia. Russians, uh, Russia's aggression. Three companies founded by conspiracy theorist Alex Jones have filed for bankruptcy. Jones is the target of numerous civil actions filed by the families of victims of the Sandy Hook school shootings in 2012. NPR's John Burnett has details. The pugnacious host of InfoWars had spread false theories that the mass murder of children and teachers at the Connecticut Elementary School nearly a decade ago was a setup job by the federal government to confiscate firearms. Some of Jones' followers went so far as to threaten the victim's parents, which forced them into hiding. The family sued, and they've already won three defamation suits, even though Jones later admitted the school murders were real. In court filings, InfoWars estimated its assets at $50,000 or less and its liabilities at up to $10 million. The bankruptcy action puts all civil litigation on hold while Jones reorganizes his businesses. John Burnett, NPR News, Austin. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed off 39 points today. The Nasdaq was off 18 points. The S&P 500 was off a fraction of a point. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. From the screaming college students lining the marathon route at Wellesley College... (laughs) ...to the encouragement of spectators on Heartbreak Hill... Boston Marathon runners were lifted through 26.2 miles from Hawkington to Boylston Street, Boston. It was a triumphant return to the traditional Patriots Day after the race was disrupted by the pandemic. Kenyan runners are today's champions. Evans Chibet took the men's division. Reigning Olympic champion Perez Jepchircher came in first in the women's division after a close finish. In the wheelchair competition, American Daniel Romanchuk took the men's crown. Switzerland's Manuela Schar won her second straight title. Among the 29,000 runners were members of the Heather Abbott Foundation. Abbott was wounded in the 2013 bombing and had to have a leg amputated. Her foundation raises money to provide custom prostheses for those who have lost limbs under traumatic circumstances. She says today was special. It does have more meaning now because, you know, rather than just a fun day with friends now, it's a fun day with friends and beneficiaries of the foundation. And we're celebrating living your life in in kind of, I guess, getting through adversity. The brother of marathon bombing victim Martin Richard finished the race today. Henry Richard ran for a foundation set up to honor his late brother. Also today, for the first time since 2019, the reenactment of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. WBOR's Gabriela Emanuel reports. 
the Lincoln Minutemen held the Dawn tribute and then started their march toward the town of Concord. Dawn Hafner is the drum major and has been part of the reenactment for 36 years. I look upon it as a wonderful way, as our country becomes more and more diverse, a wonderful way in which all of us can join in a celebration of the fundamentals of our country, its basic principles, and the struggle that it was required in order to secure our freedoms. Minutemen from a number of local towns converged on the North Bridge in Concord, commemorating the first time the colonists were ordered to fire on the British soldiers. It's become known as the shot heard around the world. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Fortunately, all the rainstorms have held off until tonight. Look for gusty winds and driving rain overnight. Lows about 42 degrees. Could be power outages on the Cape and Islands, where the wind should be especially fierce. Tomorrow, rain through the morning drive, tapering off shortly thereafter. Still windy. Temperatures in the mid-50, partly sunny skies by tomorrow afternoon. 46 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Subaru, in partnership with its retailers and the National Forest Foundation, Subaru helped replant more than one million trees in areas devastated by wildfires. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. One key thing to remember about Russian leader Vladimir Putin is that he's a former intelligence officer. He's invested heavily in Russia's current network of spies. Yet Russia underestimated the resistance it would face in Ukraine. And Russia's intelligence community is now facing the fallout from a war that's gone very badly. NPR's Greg Myrie joins us with more. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. What are people in the U.S. intelligence community saying about what's going on with their Russian counterparts? Well, I want to start with a conversation I had with Dan Hoffman. He's a former CIA officer who served multiple tours in Russia. And he says Russia is always unpredictable. And this war has repeatedly left him stumped. My imagination was never good enough ever, in spite of all the intelligence I read, in spite of the fact that I speak fluent Russian and I listen to the news and I talk to intelligence officers, lots of sources. In spite of all that, I am continuously amazed. Would anybody have imagined that the Russian soldiers would have bedded down in in Chernobyl's forest and radiated themselves? No. Well, yes. Okay. I couldn't imagine that, but I get it. It's what they do. So he said, given Russia's moves, which have been very aggressive and very erratic, he says we should be very wary about predicting what comes next. Okay, so lots of unknown. uh, But let's talk about something we have seen in Europe. What's happening to suspected Russian intelligence officers in other European countries? They're getting kicked out of Russian embassies in huge numbers. More than 20 European countries have expelled somewhere around 400 suspected Russian intelligence officers who are posing as diplomats. Poland, for example, booted out 45. Now, the Russians are known for having large numbers of intelligence officers at their embassies. And in normal times, there's an expulsion here, an expulsion there, when an intelligence officer gets caught spying by the host country. But Russia's invasion prompted these large-scale expulsions in a pretty coordinated way, and it's too early to tell, but this could lead to long-term scaling back of of diplomatic operations between uh, the West and Russia. 
And within Russia, intelligence officers aren't faring so well either. What's happening there? No, not at all. You know, just a couple days before the war, Putin really humiliated one of his security chiefs in a TV broadcast. Putin was seated at one end of a large Kremlin room, and he asked this official about the situation in Ukraine. And when he stumbled, Putin said, uh, speak plainly, and then treated him like a school kid who gave the wrong answer, even told him to take his seat. There have also been media reports that a senior intelligence official responsible for Ukraine is under either house arrest or is jailed. There's no official announcement, but it's been, been widely reported. Again, here's Dan Hoffman. It's consistent with the way that Vladimir Putin and his predecessors would treat their own inner circle. And it's a dangerous game to be a Russian senior military officer or senior intelligence officer. One day you're in, you're in the favor of the czar and the next day you're in jail. Well, is Russia's intelligence assessment likely to improve as the country appears to be starting a new military offensive? Well, we'll see. Putin has certainly scaled back his aims, at least in the short term. He's cut his losses around Kiev in the north. He's focused on the east and the south. And these are areas more favorable to Russia. And a senior U.S. defense official said just today that Russia is putting more troops and tanks and helicopters in place in the east. It seems it's trying to avoid the overly optimistic predictions it made in the first offensive. NPR's Greg Myrie, thank you. My pleasure. Nationwide, the number of people in prison has been shrinking for years. Many states are sending away fewer people and in some cases releasing them sooner. Tennessee could soon take a big step in the opposite direction. Samantha Max of member station WPLN says lawmakers there are considering a bill that would keep thousands of people behind bars for much longer. For months, Tennessee lawmakers have been debating a bill that would overhaul the state's sentencing formula. At a hearing in February, a father whose son was recently killed urged lawmakers to pass it. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Andy Rayner. I am from Rayner's Memphis. son was sleeping in his bed in Memphis when a group broke into his apartment, robbed his roommates, and shot him. Rayner said one of the people charged in his son's killing was on probation after multiple past arrests. And in my opinion, he should have been in prison. If this law had been in effect, I would not be here today. The bill is called Truth in Sentencing. It would require people convicted of many violent crimes and some cases of drug dealing to serve 100% of their sentence with no chance of early release. This is not a new concept. Let's go back to 1994. The American people have been waiting a long time for this day. President Bill Clinton stood before a crowd about to sign the federal crime bill. It promised funding for states that passed truth and sentencing laws. He hoped that locking people up for longer would stem a surge in violent crime. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. Before long, more than half the country adopted similar measures. Fast forward to now, and many states have rolled back those policies because they cause prison populations to swell, largely with black and brown folks. And research suggests they didn't do much to make communities safer. But in Tennessee, truth in sentencing still has widespread support from Republican lawmakers. I believe in truth and sentence. I will be voting for this bill. It's needed in Tennessee. It's vital to hold violent offenders accountable for their actions while also protecting victims in the public which is a principle we as Republicans say we believe. Those were state representatives Jerry Sexton, Bruce Griffey, and Bud Halsey. 
But even some conservatives worried this proposal could cause more problems than it solves, including Tony Parker, who ran Tennessee's prison system for five years before retiring last fall. The job and the true mission of corrections is to take that person from day one and focus on reentry. Parker's main concern is that without early release, people will lose the motivation to participate in programs like college classes, anger management programs, and addiction treatment. That means less rehabilitation and, he fears, more violence, both while they're behind bars and once they get out. 95% will be returning to a community. Parker wants them to be better neighbors when that happens. The best way to do that for a correctional employee is to use the tools that you have. When you manipulate that formula and take away the tools, uh, it's not good for public safety. Absolutely not. It's not good for taxpayers either, Parker and others say. More staff would have to be hired, new prisons would need to be built. Lawmakers estimated it would cost about $27 million a year to house all those extra people. But the Department of Correction thinks the price tag would be even higher, much higher. Democratic Senator Lamar London of Memphis isn't sure it's worth it. An additional $27 million to incarcerate more people. Lamar says she's concerned about violence. She co-sponsored a bill to treat it as a public health crisis. But she doesn't think truth in sentencing is the best way. I just have a lot of heartburn about the fact that we are further and increasing this prison population. And there are so many different other ways and avenues we can take to prevent violent crime. The governor hasn't said if he would sign the bill into law. He ran on a platform of criminal justice reform. But in an election year in a red state, what criminal justice reform actually means depends on who you're talking to. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. One of the pioneering businessmen behind rock and roll has died. Art Roop founded Specialty Records, the label that launched the careers of Little Richard and Sam Cooke, and helped make R&B popular with white audiences. Roop died Friday at age 104. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas has this remembrance. Art Roop was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2011 for helping to shape the sound of rock and roll and for signing artists like Little Richard. Art Roop was born into a working-class family in Pittsburgh in 1917. His father was a Jewish immigrant from Galicia in Eastern Europe. But he had stars in his eyes and set out for Los Angeles in 1939 to work in the movie business. When that didn't pan out, he switched over to the music business. That wasn't easy either. He invested in a label called Atlas Records, but they couldn't make a hit, even with Nat King Cole on the roster. Got a penny, penny. I got the telephone to Jenny. And I've just got, just got four cents to my name. Roop soon decided to create his own record label, Jukebox, to expand the audience for so-called race records, which were recordings made by black musicians for black listeners. Roop studied the best-selling race records assiduously to figure out what was popular and saw there was probably money to be made in bringing these artists to a white public. 
Roop wound up leaving Jukebox after a fallout with his partners and soon founded another label, Specialty Records. The first number one hit for Specialty came in 1950 with Pink Champagne by Joe Liggins and the Honey Drippers. Pink signed many jump blues, R&B, and gospel artists, including the Soul Stirrers. And he knew that the Soul Stirrers' lead singer, a young man named Sam Cooke, had potential as a breakout pop artist. He and producer Bumps Blackwell recorded Cooke performing a secular pop song under the pseudonym Dale Cooke in order to not alienate gospel fans. She's lovable, my She's so lovable. Mm-hmm. Root disliked the results and let both Cook and Blackwell leave Specialty with all their recordings from that session. One of the other songs they'd recorded became Sam Cook's first big pop hit, You Send Me. By 1960, Rube had grown frustrated with the machinations of the music business and particularly with the nearly endemic practice of payola, labels paying off DJs to play their songs and thereby create hits. The label went dormant by the end of that decade, and in 1990, he sold Specialty's catalog to Fantasy Records, which eventually became part of Concord Records. Even past the Sam Cooke situation, Rube didn't always hit the mark as an A&R man. While on tour in England in 1963, Little Richard phoned him to say he was on a bill with a band that Roop just had to hear. Roop wasn't interested. That group was the Beatles. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how a Brazilian priest got his city to pay attention to its homeless population's needs. Join us Tuesday, April 26th for a WBUR member night featuring a conversation with On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty. Tickets are free. Learn more at WBUR.org slash events. Red Sox and Minnesota Twins finished up their series at Fenway today and ended the way the series began with a Red Sox loss. Boston fell 8-3 to to the Twins today. Sox won the middle two games. Tomorrow, Boston hosts the Blue Jays at Fenway Park. The forecast now with meteorologist Dave Epstein. Dry and cool for the evening hours with a sea breeze. Temperatures will be in the low 50s, falling to the low 40s late tonight as we see the rain move in after midnight. Those winds quite strong along the coastline with a high wind warning for the Cape and the Islands and a wind advisory for Greater Boston along the coastline. On Tuesday, the rain comes to an end right around 8 or 9 o'clock. Temperatures in the mid-50s, still breezy all day. Wednesday, back to the sunshine, about 56 to 59 degrees. A little breezy out of the west. Thursday, partly sunny, slightly milder, up near 60. Mid-60s for Friday with sunshine. In the Boston area, now 46 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Personal fitness for women used to be considered unladylike. That all changed with fitness pioneers like Lottie Burke and Judy Shepard Missit. 
You got it. We got our jazz shoes on, we got our leg warmers on, and we're going to get jazzy and do some jazzercise songs. But look closer, and there's more to the story than jazz shoes and leg warmers. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. The economic misery inflicted by COVID-19 comes in multiple forms. In many countries, the heaviest price is paid by the poor. And that includes Brazil. The number of homeless people in Brazil's megacity, Sao Paulo, has soared since the pandemic began. NPR's Philip Reeves met one man whose campaign to fight for their rights is winning him friends and enemies. Life is tough on the front line of the battle against homelessness in Brazil. No one knows that better than this man. Father Julio Lancelotti is a Catholic priest. He's 73. Lancelotti has worked among Sao Paulo's street people for 40 years. Yet if you suggest he actually helps them, you get a prickly reply. I don't help anyone, he says. I live with them. I share what I can with them. For Lancelotti, this is about faith and about pushing back against intolerance and injustice. Society has to find a better way of living together, he says. We're in the yard of Lancelotti's parish church. He's just walked in. He's wearing a long yellow apron and pushing a shopping cart containing bread rolls. He gives the rolls to the handful of people milling around, seeking food and clothing. They include Fernando de Jesus, a father of three small kids. Four months ago, Fernando left his family in the countryside and moved to the city. Sao Paulo is big and modern. There are opportunities for me here, he says. He's yet to find a job. Sao Paulo is one of the global cities of the world. It's a place that has an enormous economic power and dynamic and great immense poverty as well. Raquel Honnick is a professor of urban studies and an expert on Sao Paulo. These are hard times for the poor, she says. Soaring inflation and high unemployment are coupled with a real estate boom. The result is we are living today one of the worst housing crises that Sao Paulo has lived throughout the history of the city. Honnick knows Lancelotti. He is a courageous man. He is doing an incredible work and he is one among very few that help to make the voices of the homeless heard in the city. A crowd of men, women and children stands in front of a community centre waiting to go in for lunch. This street is cluttered with makeshift shelters. Dogs wander amid the trash. Prayers are broadcast through a battered loudspeaker on the sidewalk. Then the meal begins. It's provided by a church organization that's teamed up with Lancelotti. The number of people eating here has tripled since the pandemic began. 
Ronaldo Gonçalves Lorenzo became homeless after his baby son died and his marriage fell apart. I don't have anything, says Lorenzo, who's 27. No house, no tent, no salary. Thank God Lancelotti helps us a lot, he says. Homelessness in Sao Paulo has risen by nearly a third in two years. At least 31,000 people live on the streets, according to a recent census. Tents are popping up all over town. Carlos Becerra Jr. is the city hall official in charge of handling this crisis. Estamos tratando essa situação como uma situação de emergência. We're treating it as an emergency, says Becerra. Lancelotti is a regular critic of city hall. Bezerra knows him well. Às vezes a gente converge, concorda. Às vezes a gente diverge. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But I have immense respect for him, says Bezerra. Bezerra and his team are now scrambling to help the city's new wave of homeless with temporary housing, health services and more. For Lancelotti, no one's doing enough. As ajudas que recebe é sempre assim, uma migalha. Government only ever offers the homeless crumbs, he says, yet it denies their basic rights. He points at some towering luxury apartment blocks being built nearby. Sao Paulo is controlled by the real estate market, he says. The poorest will always be pushed out in a giant metropolis driven by profit. That view is a red flag to some in Brazil. Olá, amigos. Salve Maria. O padre Júlio Lancelotti acaba de causar mais um escândalo. That's a video posted by a far-right Catholic group. It accuses Lancelotti of being a communist. This group is not his only enemy. There are residents who hate that people live on their streets and believe he encourages them. Lancelotti says he gets death threats. São comuns. São muito comuns. They're very common, he says. Yet Lancelotti is also collecting plenty of fans. His Instagram following has recently surged to nearly one million. He posted this footage. It's of police clearing an area notorious for drugs. They're firing rubber bullets and tear gas at street people. Lancelotti pulls out his cell phone and shows pictures he's posted. They're of so-called hostile architecture, structures deliberately designed to drive away homeless people. He shows a photo of a Sao Paulo supermarket. And points to the metal spikes on the ground. A bill is before Brazil's Congress that would ban this hostile architecture. It's named after Lancelotti. Hostile architecture is all too familiar for the multitude trying to survive on the streets of Sao Paulo. Carlos Alberto Ramos knows where the best sleeping spots are. Sooner or later, you go to one and it's full of spikes or shards of glass, he says. Ramos is among a crowd of homeless, hanging out under the palm trees in front of the city's grandiose metropolitan cathedral. He sums up his life on these streets in three words. O descaso, o desemprego, promessas falsas. Neglect, unemployment and broken promises. With Ramos is his wife, Larissa Ajuda, and baby. They live in a shelter. Ajuda still has big dreams. Podia ser professora, 
Advogada. I might become a teacher one day, or a lawyer, she says. Hamas says he just wants a job, any job. Until then, this family depends on people like Lancelotti. We need more Padre Lancelotti's, says Ramos. Many more. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Sao Paulo. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A reenactment of the battles of Lexington and Concord this morning, and then the Boston Marathon from Hopkinton to Copley Square. The women's winner had her doubts about running Boston. I was not expecting to win, uh, but I'm feeling grateful, and uh, now I can say that um, I'm believing myself more. It's the 18th of April, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. In Ukraine, the western city of Lviv had been relatively peaceful since Russia launched its invasion. Today, that changed. Local authorities say that several Russian missiles struck the city. They say that civilians were killed and that one of those missiles hit a tire repair shop. We'll have the latest from Ukraine coming up. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A senior U.S. defense official says Russia is continuing to move additional forces into Ukraine, even as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says an offensive by Russia against eastern Ukraine has now begun. NPR's Greg Myrie reports heavy fighting is ongoing in several eastern cities. The U.S. official says Russia has moved 11 battalion tactical groups into Ukraine in recent days. This brings the total to 76 such battalions, all of them either in the east or the south of the country. Each can have up to a thousand troops. 
the official described the Russian buildup as shaping operations for a larger offensive to come. In an attempt to learn from logistical problems in the initial invasion, the Russians are putting more tanks, artillery guns, and helicopters in place in advance of future fighting. That said, heavy battles are already taking place in cities from Kharkiv in the northeast down to Mariupol in the southeast. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration says it is taking a critical step in terms of working to ensure that federal dollars go to support American manufacturing. Under new guidance issued today by the administration as part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, materials for projects like bridges, highways, and broadband internet expansion would be produced in the U.S. Exceptions would only be granted if the materials would cost too much or not enough was available domestically. The Biden administration is still assessing a ruling from a federal judge in Florida. The mask mandate on planes and public transportation is unlawful. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, the White House is urging calm. The decision comes at a time when the mask requirement on planes, trains and buses was holding on by a thread. Just as the requirement was about to expire and with passenger compliance marginal, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention temporarily extended the mandate. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the CDC is still encouraging people to wear masks on planes and public transportation. CDC recommended continuing the order for additional time two weeks uh, to be able to assess the latest science in keeping with its responsibility to protect the American people. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. Saki says the administration is assessing what the ruling means and how to implement any changes. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Microblogging site Twitter has put a major roadblock in the form or from front of billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk in the event he seeks a takeover of the company. Twitter officially adopting a so-called poison pill defense that would essentially make it much more expensive for the Tesla CEO to gain a large enough stake to wield a takeover without board approval. Musk last week made a $43 billion hostile takeover offer for the company. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 39 points. The Nasdaq fell 18 points. The S&P was down a fraction. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Marathon is back to being run on Patriots Day after it was disrupted by the pandemic. In a close women's race today, reigning Olympic champion Perez Jepchirchir of Kenya finished first. Evans Jebet, also of Kenya, was the men's winner. American Daniel Romanchuk won his second men's wheelchair title here, and Switzerland's Manuela Schar won her second straight Boston crown today. From Hawkington to Boylston Street in Boston, the crowds of marathon spectators were large and loud. WBR's Ali Jarmanning filed this report from Coolidge Corner. After three years, the Boston Marathon is back where it belongs, in April, and spectators filled the streets to celebrate. Kristen Vincent brought along her mom and two young girls. She says this is her favorite day of the year. I think the marathon demonstrates the best of the human spirit, and there are so many amazing stories for all the runners, all 30,000 of them, and I find it so inspirational. Plenty of people cheering along the course agreed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani.
New Hampshire mother is facing arraignment on charges she murdered her five-year-old son, whose remains were found in Massachusetts. A grand jury today indicted Danielle Dauphinius on first- and second-degree murder charges for causing the death of Elijah Lewis. Elijah was reported missing last October. His remains were discovered buried in a state park in Abington. In case you forgot, tomorrow is tax day in Massachusetts. The customary April 15th deadline fell on Emancipation Day in Washington, D.C., so the IRS moved the tax filing deadline to today. But since Massachusetts is celebrating Patriots Day, the IRS extended our deadline until tomorrow. In the forecast, wild winds wet overnight tonight. Rain after midnight could be heavy at times. Up to 40-mile-an-hour winds sometimes, lows about 42 degrees. Tomorrow, rain should continue during the morning commute. Gusty winds as well. Eventually, partly sunny skies tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. 46 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces have launched their anticipated attack on eastern Ukraine. There's been a gradual escalation in attacks there over the past several days. Today started, though, with a surprise attack in the West, with at least five rockets fired on Lviv. It's the city that had been refuge for tens of thousands of civilians trying to flee to safety. NPR's Franco Ordonez is in Ukraine. Hi, Franco. Hey, Daniel. So, Franco, this is a big development. Lviv looks secure on a map. Um, It's about the furthest you can get from the Russian border. A senior U.S. defense official told reporters today that these were Russian cruise missiles from long-range bombers. But from where you are, um, how significant are these attacks in Lviv? You know, I'd say very. You know, this has been one of the calmest areas of the country uh, throughout the conflict. I mean, the mayor of Lviv, though, Andriy Sodavi, said the attacks uh, show that really there are no, quote, safe areas in Ukraine. What we see in Ukraine today is genocide, which is purposefully carried out by an aggressor who kills civilians. Seven civilians had plans for life. Today, their life is over. You know, he went on to say that more than 200,000 Ukrainians have fled to Lviv for safety. And actually more than 100 embassies have also moved to the city. Right. What's the sense in the city now? Well, people are scared. I mean, there are already a lot of internally displaced people there. But, you know, it's been kind of a area that has been considered safe. The closest attacks were about three weeks ago when Russian rockets hit the outskirts of Lviv. But this morning, the city was covered in black smoke for several hours. And, and people are arriving every day. My colleague Yevgen Afanasyev spoke with a young mother, Yulia, who arrived in Lviv today with her daughter, Anya, who was five. They fled the Dnipro region, trying to get away from this kind of violence. Yulia is saying that they had to leave behind her husband, Anya's father. And that second little voice there is Anya, of course, who jumped in to add that they also had to leave their cat. You know, Yulia is still a bit shaken up. She saw what was left of that attack from the train. 
Я понимаю, что в любой момент, проезжая этим поездом, если бы его не задержали, то это бы попало в нас и в моего ребенка. She sang there as they passed by the train. She realized that if the train had been on time and hadn't been delayed, the missile could have hit her and her daughter. Wow. NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks, Franco. Thank you. The Biden administration is accepting 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of their country. Thousands of these refugees are coming in through the U.S.-Mexico border, where immigration agents now fast-track their entry into the country. While many families get in quickly, not all do, and some are being separated from their children, as NPR's Adrian Florido reports. In Tijuana, Mexico, earlier this month, I met Irina Mereshko, who had just traveled to Ukraine to pick up her nephew Ivan and bring him to stay with her in Los Angeles until the war in Ukraine is over. His plan in the U.S., Ivan told me, was to study. I will study American English and, uh, and culture, American. I will study culture. culture. Ivan is a floppy-haired 14-year-old. He said he'd left his heart in Ukraine. My heart, where is uh, my uh, friends and uh, my and my family? I I miss him, them. <laughs> his father couldn't leave Ukraine because he is a fighting age. His mother stayed too to support Ukrainian troops. A patriot, her sister called her. It's the reason why she isn't here. Yeah, I am proud of her, <laughs> if be honest. The day after I met them in Tijuana, Mereshko took her nephew to the U.S. border crossing, along with the stack of notarized documents that her sister gave her. At the border, Ivan asked immigration agents to let him enter the country on humanitarian grounds. The agents said they'd first have to detain him for a day or two while the documents were verified. His aunt hugged Ivan and said she'd be there when he got out. Ten days later, Ivan is still in detention. His aunt Irina has been desperate to find out where he is and to hear from him. She's back in Los Angeles with only a number for a government hotline. They couldn't uh, tell us where uh, he is right now. They said, just wait, just wait for calls from officer. Ivan's detention is not unusual. Border agents are required by law to detain children who arrive at the border alone or with someone other than a parent and turn them over to the Department of Health and Human Services. HHS houses them in detention centers for minors until the person trying to bring them into the U.S. has been vetted. Lately, that process has been taking about a month on average. Irina Mereshko is furious that border agents told her it would be only a day or two, and that after 10 days, her family still hadn't heard from Ivan. She knows he's worried about his parents still in a war zone. And uh, he doesn't know even, uh, are they alive? Government officials declined to speak about Ivan's case. A spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services said only that children in their custody get good care while officials work to vet their sponsors and release them from custody. I think people don't understand that families are still being separated at the border. Casey Revkin is a co-director of Each Step Home, a nonprofit that helps families separated from children at the border find and reunite with them. They started this work several years ago when family separation at the border started dominating the news. They know that zero tolerance was a policy of the Trump administration that ended, but they don't know that kids are being separated from their grandmothers, their aunts, their uncles, and their siblings and taken into detention and that it takes weeks or months to reunite them. While Ukrainian refugees at the border are being fast-tracked into the country, the rules for children who arrive without their parents are the same for all children, regardless of where they're from, Repkin says. 
The detention is often made worse because it can take a long time for sponsors to get in touch with their child. Molly Saraski learned all this the hard way. In late March, she traveled to the border with Lisa, a 17-year-old family friend from Ukraine. The girl has been detained ever since. Saraski understands the need to vet sponsors, but said she's been urging other Ukrainians considering sending their children to the U.S. with relatives or friends to be prepared for a long separation. You know, for people who are just, you know, survivors of war, like it's just creating further trauma for children and for families. Saraski finally got a bit of good news today. After weeks of frantic phone calls, Lisa is getting out of detention tomorrow. Adrian Florido, NPR News. Time again for My Unsung Hero, our series from Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from John Moe. In the early 90s, John moved to Seattle to follow his dream of becoming a writer or an actor. Instead, he found himself working full-time in customer service at a software company. One day, he stopped by the office of a woman he knew in HR named Jane. Jane told him about a new job that was opening up at her husband's company. She said they were looking for someone creative. And I said, oh, okay, so you want to know if I can think of anybody creative? And she knew some of the other work I was doing on the side and the theater stuff and the comedy stuff. And she's like, no, no, I mean you. And I said, well, I don't know. I I have a job here. And she said, you don't belong here, which is a hell of a thing to hear someone in HR say at your company. She said, you're meant for something other than this. You're meant to do something else. You should be making your living being creative. And to me, it felt like I had been playing pickup basketball at the YMCA and somebody said, you know, you should, you should play for the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> like, it, was, it was that ridiculous an idea. Undiagnosed, I had been dealing with depression for a long time by then. So I just had this inherent belief that other people got to do the cool things, and I had to go get a job that I hated and work there till I died. I think when someone has no confidence, when someone's beaten themselves down over so many years, which is often the case with depression, that that one little thing can make such a difference. And I'm welling up right now because somebody had seen something in me that, that I hadn't seen in myself. And so now when I can tell somebody's really good at something and isn't giving themselves credit for it, I've done this with writers who are much less experienced than me, I, w- I try to tell them, you're a very good writer, you know, or you're an excellent reporter, because maybe they haven't been told that enough times. And that confidence from hearing somebody say that, and I can always tell when I say that, when it's received and, and goes all the way to their heart, that that's going to give them the confidence to get to the next level. And so that they can get to that point and they can tell somebody else that at some later point. You know, you have this in you. You can do this. John Moe of St. Paul, Minnesota. He's the host of the podcast Depression Mode with John Moe. My Unsung Hero is also a podcast. You can find new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday.
total COVID control in China relies on migrant workers from testing door to door to manning isolation centers. The pay is low and the work is hard. On tomorrow's Morning Edition, a look at who some of these temporary employees are. Listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, our man at the Boston Marathon, Alex Ashlock, coming up next. On Wall Street today, a slight dip for his stocks to start off the week. The Dow fell about a tenth of a percent, 40 points, to end the day at 34,412. S&P lost a tiny fraction to close at 43.92. The Nasdaq was down 0.14 percent to finish the day at 13,332. Marketplace will have the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring new ways to think about climate action. See how you can make a difference as we adapt to a changing climate and landscape. Tickets at mos.org. The forecast now with meteorologist Dave Epstein. After a gorgeous Patriots Day, we've got rain moving in in the wee hours of Tuesday morning. Temperatures falling down to the low 40s. A wind advisory along the coastline, but a high wind warning for the Cape and the Islands. Could be some scattered power outages there. The rain comes to an end during the morning commute on Tuesday, then breezy, cloudy, temperatures in the mid-50s. We clear out for Wednesday with sunshine, Thursday partly sunny, both days 55 to 60. And the Steamship Authority's warning ferry cancellations are possible on both the Vineyard and Nantucket routes tomorrow morning because of those high winds that David was talking about. Red Sox and Twins split the first series at Fenway Park today. The Twins beat Boston 8-3. to The Blue Jays come to Fenway Park tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Runners continue to cross the finish line of the 126th Boston Marathon at this hour. WBUR's Alex Ashlock has been out on the course all day long. And among the big stories of the day today, the race was run on the date that is actually supposed to be run, Marathon Monday or Patriots Day. For the first time since 2019, the pandemic had forced it to be canceled in 2020 and then moved to the fall of last year. Alex, very briefly, how'd it feel to be out there? It felt great and normal, big, boisterous crowds along the course on a beautiful spring day. The marathon back in its traditional place. Another headliner, uh, Kenyan runners did really well, and we'll get to the men's race in just a minute. But first, the women's race, which was dramatic, and you had front row seats the whole way. You were on the truck, uh, and the winner is somebody we should get to know because she has exploded on the world scene recently. Boy, she really has. Kenyan runner Paris Jepchirchir burst on the world scene. She came into this race as the Olympic marathon champion, winning in Japan in 2021, and also as the reigning New York marathon champion. She had this great battle with Ethiopian runner Annabelle Yanesha, 
of Ethiopia in the last three or four miles, but actually they were battling from about the five-mile mark in this race. They broke away from the pack. It was a kind of a smaller pack, but it was really these two runners who broke all the other runners. They came down Boylston Street. Jep Chirchir took the lead right after the turn off of Hereford, and she made her move there and won the race by four seconds. Here she is. I thank my God for the energy of today. I was not expecting to win, uh, but I'm feeling grateful. And uh, now I can say that um, I'm believing myself more. And I'm so grateful for today's victory. Well, she can be grateful for today's victory right along with her fellow Kenyan, Evans Chibet, who is the winner of the men's race. What should we know about him? Well, this was his first major win. He's 33 years old, and uh, the win today certainly must erase the bad memories he has from 2018 when he had to drop out during that monsoon we all remember. He wasn't alone that day. A lot of runners had a, a terrible experience during that terrible rainstorm we had. The men's race, like the women's race, Lisa, came down to two runners, really, but Chibet broke away a little bit earlier than uh, the women's winner did. He did it with about four miles to go to win today's Boston Marathon, and he finished ahead of two past Boston Marathon winners, 2019's Lawrence Tirono and last October's winner, Benson Kipruto. Alex, in the men's wheelchair race, American Daniel Romanchuk won his second Boston, and the defending champion withdrew at the last minute. Tell us what happened there. Romanchuk found out at the starting line, in fact, that Marcel Hug of Switzerland, who's really the best men's wheelchair racer in the world these days, had to withdraw from the race for medical reasons. And Romanchuk took advantage of Hoog's absence to win by nearly six minutes. And remember those boisterous fans I mentioned earlier? Romanchuk heard them. Remember uh, turning onto Boylston at the at the end and just seeing you know a, just a wall of uh, of people and you know, they're all cheering. Uh, so it's just a an, an amazing uh, amazing thing. And it was a familiar face taking the crown in the women's wheelchair race. Manuela Schar of Switzerland won her fourth Boston Marathon, but she too wasn't facing a big rival because American Tatiana McFadden had dropped out of the field on Friday again for medical reasons. But Char did not come into today's marathon with anything approaching confidence. Here she is. Preparation was a bit difficult. I wished I had two more weeks or so for training, preparing, so I didn't quite know uh, where I stand um, after my COVID a um, few weeks ago. So um, just so glad I'm back. Um, crowd was amazing. I really needed that today, so it was just fun to race. You know, it's just really interesting, Lisa, to hear these professional athletes talk about not being sure where they stand or not having right. confidence. Paris Jepchirchir said she wasn't expecting to win today. This is a woman who won the Olympic marathon and she came into the Boston Marathon not expecting to win. It's just really interesting to hear that. There were some headwinds during the race today. Did that nullify any chance of somebody running a record time? Were there any records broken? Well, the Boston Marathon is not really a record-breaking race. It's really just about winning the race. It's a lot like the Olympic Marathon. Um, the Kenyans do really well here. They're very good championship runners. The African runners in general do very well. They scored five of the top ten places in the men's race. There was one American in the top ten, Scott Fobble of Flagstaff, Arizona. The top U.S. woman was Nell Rojas of Boulder. She was tenth, but seven other American women, women, that is, finished in the top 20, including Daz Linden, the 2018 champion. Those women today were part of a very special race that marked the 50th anniversary of the first official women's division 
at the Boston Marathon. So they wrote a new chapter in that history. Excellent. WBR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock at the finish line. Thank you so much, Alex. You're welcome, Lisa. And crowds lined the course and cheered on runners as the marathon was back on Patriots Day for the first time since 2019 because of the pandemic. WBR's Yasmeen Amherst spent part of the day with spectators at the halfway mark by Wellesley College. It's a cool and sunny spring morning. Sarah Rifkind is here from Chicago to cheer on her brother Kyle. He spent years trying to qualify for Boston. It means everything for him. We've called it his Mount Everest. But Kyle had delayed his Mount Everest. He qualified to run the marathon last year when it was moved to October, but decided to wait. Because this is something he's been working towards for so long, he wanted the full experience. And the full experience of running the Boston Marathon, in his mind, was doing it in April, on Patriots Day. Even regular spectators welcomed the marathon back to April. 15-year-old Caroline Kolka has been watching the race since she was one. This year feels different from last October's. I feel like I was more hesitant to give people high fives because COVID was still pretty relevant. But now I feel like I'll be more comfortable getting closer with people because lots of people are vaccinated and um, it's just come so far since the very beginning of COVID. But some traditions have had to take a step back. Kolka's family used to cut up orange slices to hand out to runners, but not today. Yeah, it's kind of sad, but maybe in a couple of years people will feel more comfortable eating oranges from strangers. Another tradition here at the Wellesley Screen Tunnel is for college spectators to kiss passing runners. The college told students not to do that last year. This year, it's more like a strongly discourage. But that won't stop everyone, at least not Helena Bowser. My sign says, kissing me is better than runners high. Honestly, would you kiss any of the runners this year? Absolutely, absolutely I would. I'm a junior at Wellesley, I would absolutely kiss a runner. So you want to bring that tradition back? Absolutely. I think it's like, it's time to bring it back. It's time to have fun. So it's like, it feels safe to bring it back to you. I don't know if it's safe, but you know, it's a time in my life to make questionable decisions. Yeah. But Rebecca Hobbs, a senior, has never been a fan of the kissing, even before COVID. Honestly, even back then, it was like kind of gross because everyone was really sweaty, you know. But I also think with COVID now, it's a perfect time to let the tradition die and start a new one. For her, a simple high five does just the trick. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. There was also action over at Fenway Park today. The Twins beat the Boston Red Sox 8-3. to They split the series at Fenway. Blue Jays come to Fenway Park tomorrow. Let's get the forecast now. After a lovely day, there's going to be a change in the weather. Here's meteorologist Dave Epstein. Some high clouds around during the evening. It's cool with the sea breeze, but we fall to the low 40s overnight tonight. And when you get up tomorrow morning, it will be raining hard. Those winds strong along the coastline with a wind advisory for Boston, but a high wind warning for the Cape and the Islands. The rain does come to an end pretty early on Tuesday by about 8 or 9 o'clock, mid-50s, still breezy all day. On Wednesday, sunshine about 55 to 58, and Thursday, partly sunny, approaching 60. 
46 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR at 6.30 and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Some communities removed Confederate memorials. Others have put up new monuments designed for a new era. It's like almost as if the civil rights movement has just begun again with the new generation. How do monuments to lynching or to activism encourage a different conversation about the past? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.